you brought your Bibles, I want you to open to two places. One, Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 7. And the other place is Nahum, if you can find it. Nahum chapter 1. Jeremiah 17 and verse 7. It's a simple verse of Scripture. It's a profoundly continuing theme in the Bible. It is never old, out of date. You never have too much of this. You never overdo this, I don't think. But he says, blessed is the man that trusts the Lord. Amen. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. That's who he counts on. That's who he's looking to, to do what he said. But notice he said, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. You know, I think we read that so much or we quote that so much or we hear that so often that maybe some of the oomph is taken out of it. But let me just reemphasize blessing. When God blesses, it is always wonderful. The blessing brings you to a place where he gives you he does for you. He provides for you in a way that other people often say, wow, that, man, what, how'd you, you're lucky or something like that. Because they know that God makes a difference with you when he blesses you. But he doesn't just bless you for no particular reason at all. In this case, he said the one single reason why God blesses you is because you made a choice. And that choice was to trust him. Now, I want to talk about tonight blessings for those who trust. Obviously, the Lord, trusting the Lord. Blessings for those who trust the Lord. And he said, blessed is the man who trusts the Lord and the one who makes God his hope. And in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7, he said, he knows them that trust him. He knoweth them that trust him. Now, would he say that about us as a group of people? Would he say that about you as an individual? Would he say there's a group of people who not only trust the Lord, but they have learned how to trust the Lord, and they want to trust the Lord? I'm sure every Christian wants to trust the Lord. Not every Christian does trust the Lord. Because, you see, trust means to have confidence in, to be sure of, to be reliant, to feel secure in him. Now, we can read all the things that Bible says about all the things that God can do, and he does many marvelous and wonderful things. Bible's filled with all the things that God does. And what he can do is what he's promised to do, things that any normal person would want him to do for them also. But the condition very often to receive these things is trust. And again, trust is simply one who chooses by an act of your will to count on God to do what he said. You can't make him do this. You read a book that's been copied and so forth and handed down. This is all we've got. And we choose as an act of our will, while others say, well, I don't know about that. We choose to say, no, sir, I believe that what he said here, he meant and that he will do it. I don't care if it was written 4,000 years ago. It still applies for me today because this book is an endless, timeless book. And therefore... I choose to believe that this will work. I accept it now, and I'm going to count on God to do this, which is essentially what faith is. To trust in God is to believe that God will and act like it. And to act like God will do something is to trust in him. They go together. They're not the same word, but we're talking about the same thing. We probably learn the most about the word trust in those verses in Proverbs 3. You remember this, trust in the Lord, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding because there's the contrast. People really don't trust in the Lord because mentally they can't see how that's going to work. How can he do that? I haven't seen him do that before. That seems difficult to believe in light of this age and this time. Whereas another person would say, well, I know, but he said he would do it. You trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and you lean not to your own understandings. Because that's where doubt and unbelief comes from. 
in all your ways, in verse 6 of Proverbs 3, he says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. That would imply, at least to me, that you're not doing things you consciously know God would not want you to do. I mean, you couldn't go into a bar to drink a bunch of that stuff consciously knowing that you shouldn't do this. You couldn't acknowledge God, for example. You couldn't acknowledge God doing that any more than you could acknowledge God when you were cursing or blaspheming or backbiting or speaking evil about somebody. You couldn't acknowledge God in all of that because that's not what he gave you to do, and he doesn't honor that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, there's blessings that follow. There are many, many things. There's more than I'm going to get to tonight that God can bring to you. But one of the wonderful blessings that God brings and gives on the basis of trust is his goodness. His goodness. I want you to look at that. Turn to Psalm 31. The goodness of God. And the psalmist said in verse 19, Oh, how great is thy goodness. Now, goodness is one of God's perfections. God is essentially good. God is immutably good. He is eternally good. He is the standard of all that is good. There is nothing about God that is not good. There is nothing about what he does that is not good. Even in judgment, making a clear distinction between the reward of the righteous and the damnation of the unjust, God is good. He is fair. The grace of God that brings salvation appears to all men. Some receive it, some won't. God is just and God is fair. Because essentially, as I said, God is good. He is originally good. There was never a time that he wasn't good. So goodness is one of those perfections of God that is revealed in the Scripture. Like in this verse, he said, Oh, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for those that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that, and here's our word, them that trust in thee before the sons of men, that is, before other people, regardless of what it costs us, what they say about us, what they say to us, what happens to us, we are willing to live this life wherever we are in front of whomever, no matter what the times dictate or anybody else. God will do this in verse 20 of Psalms 31. Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of men. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Isn't that good? He did say that in Psalm 23, as you all know, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He's restoring me. He restores my soul. He is remaking me. And then he tells about all the things that he does, the table that is prepared. He ends the psalm by saying that surely, you read Psalm 23, after you, when you get through with all of that, you come down to the bottom and says, surely, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and when it's over, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is good. God is good and merciful, he said there. More than we deserve, God is good to us. You stop and think that God could have left us in our sins. He could have just casually spoke about redemption to us to where, like so many people, have gone in one ear and out the other. Or you hear it so much in some way that doesn't have any meaning that it doesn't mean anything to you. You just join church and assume on God. He could have left you that way. You think back, all of you in here, to the day you got saved. You think back to the day or the night or the time, if you can remember, I hope you can, in which God got a hold of your attention and he captured your heart. And the Bible says in Romans 2, the goodness of God led you to repentance. And there, with all the sorrow you could muster up for a dirtiest life you'd ever seen, the most miserable, ugly, defiled human being that ever lived, you saw yourself that way. And you did because God is good. Do you see the contrast here? I mean, you saw the ugly and the nasty and the wicked part of you, and it broke your heart because God is good. 
You see, if you never saw those things, if you never saw yourself as God sees you, if you never saw the awfulness of sin because God sees that, if you never saw that, if you never viewed yourself from a divine standpoint as best you know how, you had no reason to turn away from your sins. People who lean to their own understanding concerning spiritual things. A lot of people justify their life, they justify their sins, they justify the wrongs that they do because they compare themselves with other people. See, I look at other people and I can find a whole lot of people that, you know, your mind says, well, you're better than they are. You're living better than they are. I mean, isn't that what you said when you were driving down to church one Sunday morning past the golf course and, and there were some people out there whacking that ball and you said, oh, oh, sorry, souls, I'm going to church. You see, if I compared myself to you, I got a good chance. Just by sheer effort, I got a real good chance. But boy, when God reveals to me what he sees, I have no chance. None whatsoever. I have no part or lot in anything holy and divine. I am a miserable, wretched sinner. I don't think all church members have ever seen that. I think we've just kind of merged into a religious gathering where we look at each other, we're probably as good as each other, and we're all about the same. And we excuse them. We say nobody's perfect. I mean, after all, you gotta, I mean, come on. And we're starting to dismiss all the reasons and the need for holiness and cleansing and all the things that we read about. Preachers tell us we don't have to do all of those things. And then we begin to compare ourselves with other people. We judge other people on the basis of ourselves. That is one of the reasons we become critical, because you're not as good as far along as we are, as advanced as I am or others. And yet one day, like Job, like Job said, he said, you know, I've heard of you. I've talked about you, but now I see who you are. You've spoken to me, and the clearness of your word has invaded my mind. And with the eyes of my heart, I see the wickedness of my life and my attitude. And I really have put myself before you. And I repent because that's a good thing. All the things, the exposure of sin in your life is a good thing. Those days or nights or the moment you spent crying about your sins. I did. I came to a point on June the 30th, 1968, that I really didn't care at that point what anybody thought about me crying. One thing I knew I'd never cry in church well, that day I did. I didn't care anymore because I think it was that humbling yourself before him who is over all and who is above all. And the light that shines into your heart begins to reveal what you really and truly are in and of yourself. You are so much unlike God, so far away from him, you're not even worthy of him or his kingdom. Isn't that what the publican said? couldn't even so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven, but he smote upon his breast and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's the goodness of God that causes that to happen. There's nothing more wonderful. There's other equal attributes that God has. You know, they're all good, but his goodness, his goodness is wonderful. Even in verse 20, thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of men. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. You know, that doesn't mean that God takes you and hides you somewhere that people in society wonder whatever happened to you. Whatever happened to that weirdo? Well, he's in space hidden in some secret chamber up in the sky. Bible uses words like that to show relationship. It is God who, when you're doing what he wants, he knows your weaknesses. He knows how much, when people bang on your headpiece, how much you can take and how much it takes for you to give up and quit, get discouraged or despondent. And it is God who said he will hide you from the pavilion of tongues. That's what he said, isn't it? 
I think God lets it roll off your back. I think God teaches you how to, when you hear all of that stuff, to reassure yourself before the Lord. Remember Jeremiah said, Lord, I'm going to quit talking about all this. I'm about finished reading the book of Jeremiah. What an amazing man. What an amazing creature. He said, Lord, every time I open my mouth, it's judgment. I can't even say, hey, how you doing without? Are you saved and going, you're going to hell if you don't? I can't even hardly speak without being damnation, hellfire, and judgment. He said, I determined I'm going to quit talking. He said, your word was shut up in my heart like fire in my bones. Shut up within me like fire in my bones. I couldn't help but speak. But I think God gives you a temperament. When you're living the life, and you know, when you start living it, when you start walking the way you're supposed to, you get singled out for adversity. We'll get to that again in a minute. You get noticed. I remember when they started talking about me and who I was and the family I came from and, and others in my family, and you know, you're less than you're not, and look, you're ruining the whole thing. I know, I know what people say. I know how you feel when you take a stand, and you know this is it. You won't ever get, come back here again because you just said, I know. But I think there's something that God does by his spirit to make you firm and steadfast and strong. And people make up little things about you, and they have little funny names. They call you, and things are said about you, slander and all of that. I think it's God who hardens. What do you give Jeremiah a head like flint? Would we call that a hard head? I've had people call me hard-headed before. I think my mother started, but it's just something that God does from the strife of tongues so that you hear these things and you don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to fight back. You don't have to come back. You just say, praise the Lord. Not everybody can do that. A lot of people want to fight. They want to get in somebody's face. But there's those who are living right. You're going to be persecuted. Jesus said you will be hated. It'll come to that. You will be hated. Your stands that you're going to take, you're going to be hated. When the rapture comes, when you're gone, people are going to say, what happened to so-and-so? They'll say, I don't know, but we're glad they're gone. That bunch was against everything. They wouldn't even take the mark of the beast. They wouldn't do this. They wouldn't, do, they wouldn't sign petitions. They were just, they were against everything. Now they're gone. We're so glad. They will probably say, but take also in this business of God's goodness, secondly, in chapter 32, his mercy. Psalms 32. God not only is good, but alongside goodness is mercy. Mercy is the relief of the miserable and pity shown towards them. It's something that only God can do. You're helping others in a way they cannot or are not able to help themselves. Chapter 32 and verse 10. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. God will relieve miserable moments and things in your life. Let me tell you something. Just like being tested all the time. Some people expect to be tested all the time. Same old trial over and over again. There comes a time that you can say, maybe not every time, listen to what I'm saying, but there comes a time the devil knows that you just accept whatever he's doing and you call every discomfort in your life a trial when it sometimes is judgment. Sometimes it's chastised, and you think it's a trial. You try to act like you have faith, and you don't get any better, and it just keeps getting worse, and you can't understand what's going on. Well, that's another sermon, of course, about trials and judgments. But there are times that you can say to the devil, you know, I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to have that anymore. God has not only delivered me from this thing several times, mercifully so, because I've been through some trials I didn't do well. You wouldn't want to tell people that. You wouldn't want to stand in a pulpit and say, I got delivered last night, but I shouldn't have been. You know, everybody would go, you? 
Oh, I remember one time, I don't want to tell the whole story, but one of the kids was going through a trial, and I wasn't doing well. I was kind of fussing at God. If I were you, I wouldn't let this happen. I care about this kid. And look at what, and you know, and it wasn't long after that, in the middle of this little silent tirade I was having, that the healing came. It just went to sleep, and they got well the next morning and all of that. And you go in there, you look at the next morning, everything is perfectly well, and then your heart kind of smites you. And he said, you know, this didn't happen because you had such great faith and you peacefully went to bed and cast your care over on the Lord. You struggled all night long with this. And God has been very merciful to you, hadn't he? So you get this little voice. Now, when you give your testimony tonight at church, don't act like you just waited in there and knocked the devil out and you just went to bed and ignored it because uh, you didn't do well last night. But God is merciful. You can't just say, well, I don't have to fight because his mercy will come. You can't do that. But I'll guarantee you in this room, a lot of you have gotten blessings, deliverance, or healings when you really didn't exactly fight that well. And you have God to be thanked, and he should be thanked by you because he is merciful. Sometimes your prayer was not so much of faith as it was of desperation. And I believe God can see our hearts. It's like that man who said, Lord, help my unbelief. I really, really want this. I really want to see this through. God can see a heart, and he is merciful. Mercy is one of the wonders in his makeup and in his person that he does these things. We don't always understand why he did this. We're told that it's on the basis of trusting him. And yet there's times we didn't do it as well as we should. But he was merciful to us. He was good. He says in verse 10, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Would you like to walk? knowing that God is making a difference in your life by just simply ministering to you as you go. Psalm 23 again, Surely goodness and mercy shall... So they're companions. Mercy doesn't come flying into your life from space somewhere occasionally, just right before it was too late. But they follow you. Mercy. That's why I guess people say, when they say, how are you doing? You say, better than I deserve. Because I do do better than I deserve. Maybe you don't, but I am grateful and thankful to God tonight that I'm doing better than I deserve. I do want to trust Him. I do want to please Him. I do want God to be pleased with me, and I want Him to be on my side. But I don't want to think that I can earn His power or His might, because I cannot. Mercy, he said, will follow me. Listen to this. I'll read this one to you. In Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Listen to that. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. I just talked about it. You see, I do not believe, even though God is doing a work in us and he's bringing us somewhere, I do not yet believe we all always qualify to receive what we got from God. We might have given him enough trust. He saw just enough. It only takes a mustard seed sometimes. But he saw just enough of the real thing that caused all the wonderful power of heaven to come. But he said it's of the Lord's mercies that we not the wicked, but that we are not consumed. His compassions, his care for your life, for your children's life, for your tomorrows and delivering you from all the effects of yesterday, his compassion for you, his program he has got for us. He said it's new every morning. He's never finished his work. He's just constantly dealing with you every single day. Isn't that good? God is merciful to us and has warned us in the Bible that we are to be merciful also. God will 
give mercy to us as we are merciful to other people. Remember that verse in Matthew 18. A man was forgiven a lot. He said, pay me that which thou owest. And the man said, I can't pay you that much. I don't, like a million dollars. The guy was in jail. You owe me a million. I want it. He said, I don't have a million dollars. He said, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And the Bible says the man who was owed all that money did have mercy on him. And he had mercy on him in the sense that he forgave him. He delivered him from his debt so that the debt was no more his. You're free to go. You are clean. You are clear. There is nothing behind you that you have to turn around and pay back. You're free. All your sins, all your guilt, everything, you've been delivered. And then Jesus said, this man goes out and finds one of his companions that owes him $10. And grabbed him by the throat. He must have been a little fellow. And grabbed him by the throat and said, give me my $10. I need my $10. And they went and told the man that forgave him all that debt. He said, you know what he just did? He grabbed a guy by the throat that owed him $10. And he was hard on that man. He called him back in. He said, did I not forgive you of a lot? Did I not show mercy to you and relieve you of your debt? These are the words that he used. Shouldest thou not also have had compassion even as I showed compassion to you. Compassion and mercy are kind of brothers. How often are we not merciful? There's a lot of things in our lives that we don't forgive people for. There's a lot of times in our life we need to give somebody some room, and we don't. Mercy and compassion are two of those words that give us the kind of character that is like God's, that makes us you know the word godliness? It's a Greek word, eusebia, which means a right, true relationship with God, relating with God so that what he is begins to affect who you are and how you are. Be you therefore perfect, even as your Father is perfect. Love others as I have loved you. Faith that we have is the faith of Jesus. It's like Everything that God brings into your life is everything you need to be what he wants you to be. And as he begins to bring you and cleanse you and work on you, these things begin to come into your life. You start taking stands. You start believing differently. Your life changes. You're not the same person you used to be because God is doing the work. And the work that he does makes you the kind of person he wants you to be. He says, now, when you relate to other people, you just remember how God has been good to you, and you be like that with others. You be kind to other people. God could say, how did I treat you when you were a basketball coach on some of those ugly moments in your life in those days and those years? How did I treat you? Did I destroy you? No. Were you ever spared from accidents and wrecks, and you should have died when you were 20? I remember some bad times. Did I spare you? Yeah. I had mercy on you. Well, you be merciful towards other people. Quit being so mean and rude and ugly and judgmental and critical. You be to other people like I have been to you. That's good advice. Mercy. Merciful. And then in Micah chapter 7 and verse 18, these words. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He doesn't stay mad forever. He delights in mercy. God said this to his people in Isaiah 54. Of course, they're not going to listen to this, but I would remind all of those who believe that God no longer has any dealings with Israel, but he's changed from the nation of Israel over to the church now. He said these words in Isaiah 54. Verse 7, for a small moment I have forsaken thee, but with great mercies I will gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Not only did he say that to a nation, how about us? Have you ever felt like God was not around, that's not in the area. 
You ever felt like you were apart, distant, alone, separated from God ever? Have you ever wondered, is there really a God? If there is, why doesn't he do something? Like you're not even associated. You've been put out or separated until you no longer have any good ideas that you used to have. You seem like that nothing is working. You lay your hands on something, that doesn't work. You pray about something, it gets worse. It just seems like that everything is just everywhere but where it should be. But God said, with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you. And he said, because I'm the Lord, your Redeemer. God's going to teach us how to walk without feelings. He's going to teach us how to walk by faith, trusting in his word. Sometimes those nights are dark and lonely, and you don't have those goosebumps and that whoopie-doo feeling. All you've got is the memory in your mind of a word. You know it came from God because the night he gave it to you, it just blessed you so much. Now that's all you've got. But you know what he says about that word? He said that word is like a sword. It's the power of God. That word is. That's the power that God gives you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God to all those who believe, Romans 1.17. Paul said, I'm glad that when I spoke to you the word, you received it not as just a word, but a word from God, which effectually works in those of you who believe. It's the power of God. God created the worlds with his words. He said in Hebrews 1 and verse 3 that he upholds all things by the power of his word that when he spoke, everything that is exists, and now everything operates by that word. And Jesus is the epitome of all that. He's a living word. He is the word, the logos of God. And to imagine that he takes up his residence in your heart, sent the Holy Spirit into your life so the word can be known and understood and clear, and then singles you out as a vessel carrying his word to watch over his word, all the days of your life, that is merciful. You don't deserve that. I don't either. The faith that came to you came from God. The ability to trust came because God stirred you up to do that. And when he does that to you, then he watches over that word to perform it. How great is our God. Praise the Lord. Even our salvation. Remember, Paul wrote this to Titus. He said, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, hath he saved us. But according to his mercy, he saved us. He didn't have to, did he? Maybe I shouldn't say you, but I know with myself, when he looked at me, there was nothing there worth saving. What was in my life but sin and attitude? Probably in some degree, yours too. This is a wonderful story. Because of what Jesus did, God can dive deep into the darkest places and save the most wretched of all men. The value that God placed on what Jesus did enabled God to save the worst kind of people there is. There's no limit to whom God can save. There is no limit. There's no darkness, no sin, no anything that's so bad that God couldn't save it. An old-timer many years ago, John Newton, was about as bad a slave trader and a vile human being to hear him tell it as there was. And by mercy, through grace, grace was the highway that mercy traveled on into John Newton's life. And in one space of time in his life, he made the man to see his wretchedness how awful and low and ugly and vile he was and put him on his face. All he could do was weep. Just weep because of my sins. God was merciful to him. That is what mercy does. God saved us by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Ghost because he's good. Take another thing. Psalm 34. We'll just keep going. There's so many things in here about trust. But remember, mercy comes to those that trust him. Third thing he said tonight, 
there would be none desolate. None of you would live your life with the guilt of sin hanging over you. Listen to this. Verse 22. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants. And none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Now, the word desolate has to do with being guilty. That is, guilty in the sense that none of you will be left to the judgment that sin demands. Sin does demand judgment. Amen. That's why guilt, guilt's such a horrible thing that most people can't get rid of it, and yet you have to have guilt before you get repentance. Listen, when God does show you, when God wants to save somebody, he does the work of godly sorrow. Remember that is godly sorrow that leads to repentance. God just simply singles you out, not your mother, your brother, your sister, maybe nobody else in your class, nobody else in your role in the church, but he singles you out to begin to bother you about your sins. He didn't have to. But he knew you from the foundation of the world. Your time has come, so he starts dealing with you, just like John Newton's time came. Mine came in 1968. It was time. There was a time that this will happen. There was a time that salvation will come to somebody. When it begins to happen, it begins to happen sometimes incrementally, just a little bit by a little bit, a little here, and it adds to it. Sometimes it just comes all of a sudden. But when it does come, you see your guilt. Guilt is a condition that a man has in which he deserves, and he knows he deserves judgment. You know you're wrong. No amount of psychology can make you right. You know you're wrong. I am wrong. Man doesn't want to be wrong. That's why they're trying to get the Ten Commandments out of public places and stop prayer in school, in God we trust off of coins. Deny even anything about God, because with God comes guilt. The world lies in darkness, and even lost people will tell you this. The Civil War was see you in hell, Johnny Reb. I mean, it was just like we know what's going to happen to us. We know we're lost. We know we're sinners. Even sinners talk about church folks. They say, well, you know, they go to church, but nothing happens. Because they know something's supposed to happen. They inherently know this. That anybody that names God or mentions Jesus should be somebody, if you watch them, they have something that others don't have. They live on a clean level or a moral level that's not everywhere. They're different. You're not comfortable around them, but you know they're right. You still cuss and drink and do all the vile things that the world does and teaches you to do, but when you see those that are right, you know they're right, and you know inherently that you also should be right. That's why you don't want to hang around people like that. I hope I could say this to kids in school. Don't want to hang around Christian kids because they're a constant reminder of what's right. And you can't talk about what you did last night around the Christian kids because they'll usually have a comment that honors God and dishonor sin. They're not trying to hurt people. They're just trying to say, you know, well, come smoke this with it. I don't think God wants me to smoke. Who? What? I gave it up a long time ago. I don't think God would be pleased if I would start doing that again. God, you Christian? I am. Then they start watching you. Then they start looking for any little mistake they can find. Anything. Anything. The pencil laying on the floor that you took. You stole that pencil. I did not. I just picked it up. It belonged to somebody else. Was it yours? Did you buy it? No. Something. Anything. They saw you take off at a traffic light. You know, you kind of took off too quick. and you, Or maybe, I hope that's just a little, and that was it. Instead of a, you know. They would have never talked to you like that or thought things about you like that until they realized that you're a Christian. You make them guilty. If they can tear you down and find faults in you, they won't be guilty about being around you anymore because you know better than they are. That's why your testimony has to be blameless in the world. That's why you can't hang around anybody as friends you choose to be around. You can't do that. What fellowship does light have with darkness? 
what fellowship does the devil have with you? You can't do that. People do it all the time and justify, well, you know, we're Christian, we're trying to reach the lost. You don't have to be lost to reach the lost. Just preach the word. Speak the truth. Live the life. Let me see how this works. Is there a verse of scripture anywhere in the Bible that, wait a minute, it's that one, let your, uh, yeah, 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 that's Matthew 5. Let your light so uh, shine before the world that others will see your good works, and what will they do? It doesn't mean they go, hallelujah, but they simply say, well, he's a Christian. In that sense, you're in agreement with God that what God has done to that person has made that person the kind of person that God wants them to be. And you really do glorify God. He said, the Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants. Redeemed. How I love to proclaim it. But redeemed the soul of his servants. And none of them that trust him shall come to the end of their life bearing their guilt, depressed, desolate. Because God redeems you. The effect of redemption on those to whom it is exercised upon is joyfulness. Joyful, exuberance, worship and praise, a smile, a look, peacefulness, because you're redeemed. And one thing the redeemed do, the Bible says, the redeemed will trust in the Lord. Let me tell you something else about trust. For a person that trusts the Lord... They will be stable. Once you see what's going on in the world, if you do, and you see what your life is like and what he's promised, and you begin, all right, I'm going to take you at your word, and you start trusting him, and he starts bringing a whole new way of living and a whole new way of thinking into your life, you don't want to get away from that. Oh, you're still tempted, yes, but you don't want to get away from that. Turn to Psalms 125. Psalms 125. You don't want to get away from that. You don't want to go back to the old way of life, the way you lived before. You found the new way of living. They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion. Do you think Mount Zion, the hill where the city of God, do you think it will ever be bulldozed down and flattened? Mortal man could not make a bomb, a bulldozer, or a team of either to blow up Mount Zion. It'll never be gone. It's the hill of God. And he says, they that trust, that choose God to take him at his word, to count on God, rely on him, and have confidence in him, they shall be like Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. Does your Bible say this? That eternal life is found in trusting God. Doesn't abiding forever mean trust? We've already dealt with guilt. We've dealt with goodness. We've dealt with desolation and slander and being strong. And now here he says you'll be stable. When the enemy comes in like a flood and he tries to throw you off course or defeat you, what does God do? He raises up a standard against him. Why? Because he said he would. You're the apple of his eye. You're the reason for what God is doing on this earth today, the good things he's doing. I mentioned the other day, his program for you is to prepare you for heaven. Cleanse you. To make you the kind of person that heaven was made for. You're not going to get to heaven and then, well, I'll work it all out then. God will work it out now if you're his. Because if you're his, one of the things you do is you trust him. You count on God. Tried everything else. It didn't work. I'm going to trust the Lord. You made God your source. You took him at his word. You begin to count on him for results. You did what the Bible says you should do and whether ever anybody else did or not, you walked out the trial with your leg or with your lungs and with whatever physical problem you went through that people could hear or see, and they thought you were nuts and crazy, and you just trusted the Lord. Everybody thought you were some cult, but you just trust the Lord. 
You did all of that, and look here. 30 years later, you're still here. I thought of this the other day. 40 years later, and how much turmoil can I think of in my own personal life that I have been around, which if you had allowed it, if you had let it conquer you or just depress you and frustrate you, I'd have done what a lot of other people done, and so would you. We'd have quit. We'd have settled for something less than the narrow way. And somebody would have told us the narrow way is okay if that's, that's your thing, but, you know, it's not all that. But we settled for a narrow way. And we didn't give up. We didn't turn back. And here we are tonight. We're still here. Not many have started, but we're still here. Forty years ago. And the physical things that come our way, some personality problems with other people, some clashes, maybe being asked to leave a church, or having maybe a parent or your parents put you out of the house, disown you, maybe the loss of a mate because of your beliefs and the agony you went through and the difficulty and the sorrow and the sadness you felt, you would never think that God was in this way cleansing you. I mean, he's given you a whole lot of things to do. It's just, oh, God, this is too much. No, it's not. I'd rather see you all flap and struggle and, and hear him say at the end of all this, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The spots and wrinkles are gone but you ain't shining but come on into heaven I'd rather do that but flop and fuss and fume now than to have it your way now and then hear him say I never knew you amen I mean I would I'd like to know that we don't have to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that God knowing how fickle man is and seeking an easy way through life has determined to get a word into your heart that you won't trade for anything else. And that word has made you stable. You haven't faltered and failed. When others have around you and they made all their excuses, you didn't because of the power of that word in your life. You chose to trust it. Put your finger here, because we're coming back in this direction, and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21. And believe it or not, verse 21 is speaking about us. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you how? Holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. Did we mention this the other day? If, if, if. God has said this is what he will do, and now he says to you, this is what's going to happen if. Let me read it. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. If you continue... In his sight, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. God's going to do the work, isn't he? And all he asks for you to do is to take him at his word and hold fast. You see, you can't be stable and steadfast and unmovable unless you trust the Lord. You must make a decision. It's a choice. I will trust the Lord for this and no matter what comes my way I will trust him that I will be able to stand well like you said in Ephesians 6 you know you're going to wrestle with the devil but you've got to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might for we wrestle not with flesh and blood but against principalities powers and so forth and he said and having done all stand that's all you can do don't wave your flag of, listen to me, I'm tough. You just stand. 
Sometimes nobody can see you going, only God and only the devil. And you're standing and you're steadfast because God's doing this work in your heart to teach you to cling to him and hold to him. Count on him. No matter what, even when it looks bad, hold fast and trust the Lord. And he said, if a man is going to trust the Lord, he's going to be stable. They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion. They shall never be moved, which cannot be moved. And finally, you go back to where you were in the book of Proverbs, which is one book over from the Psalms where you put your finger towards the end of Proverbs in chapter 29. He said, you're going to be safe. Verse 25, Proverbs 29 and verse 25. The fear of man bringeth a snare, but this is contrasting the threat of man. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. The fear of man, dreading what a man can do, what a government, a political office, a law, a gang, fearing what a man can do brings a snare. Because when you act in fear, you can't act in faith. When there is dread and fear in your life, it rules out everything that, well, is sponsored by love. There is no fear in love, the Bible says. And... Your faith operates by love. You love the Lord. You want to do what he said because he's God. I, I'm just going to do what he says because you love him. But when you get to the place where you're tempted with fear, and we all are, all of us are, I would never stand here and make light of the fearful moments that I've experienced in 30 years or 40 years. Fearful moments. I thought, you know, something's going to get me. Well, you might laugh, but you wouldn't want to laugh too loud. Because there have been a lot of times you thought something was going to get you too. You can sit out in the yard in the daytime, baddest thing on the block. Yeah, walk out in the sunshine. Come on. But when it gets dark, you run in there and crawl under the bed. Now, I'm making that up a little bit overdoing it. But just to show you that fear is real. Driving down a road on a real snowy or worse than that, those icy nights got a long way to go been there a lot of times didn't like any of it there was never time i said praise god i love this all i could think of is how much longer till i get home sliding around you know but the bible says what time i'm afraid i will trust you i think it's psalm 56 what time i'm afraid i will trust you he didn't say you're not going to be afraid he simply said he would deliver you in the Psalms from all your fears. But man, man can come upon you and threaten you pretty good. The fear of some person, the fear of what some person can do or might do. The fear of man brings a snare. But the contrast to that, he said, those who put their trust in the Lord shall be safe. What do you say in chapter 18 and verse 10 of Proverbs? The name of the Lord is a high, high tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. That's why we equip ourselves in fearful moments with the name of Jesus. Sometimes we say the blood of Jesus. Because there was redemptive power and might in the blood that overrode everything the devil ever did was in the power of his blood. So we use that. Sometimes we just speak the name of Jesus. Like a great evangelist from years ago, a healing evangelist. Him and the men gathered around a sick person, and they prayed, and he said he could tell when he laid hands on them, there was nothing there. That's an empty feeling when you pray for somebody and there's nothing. He said, what are you trying to feel? It's not a feeling as much as it is a sensing in your heart that this will work. And you lay hands on somebody, and you know this ain't going to work. They're going to cry louder tomorrow than they did tonight. He said, well, I don't know what else to do. We just have to leave this soul to the Lord and... They stepped out of the room. As he was walking out of the room, he said, go back and gather around the bed again and just speak the name of Jesus. Heard this story years ago. And they went back in the room and gathered around this sick person, just began saying Jesus. Didn't pray, wasn't petitioning God for anything, wasn't asking God for anything, just said, Jesus, Jesus. Just started saying Jesus. And pretty soon the lady or the man where it was raised up and they were totally well. 
That's another man's story. I remember one night in Barberville, West Virginia. This is years ago. I had just witnessed a man fall on a nun. A fellow by the name of Bazanski. He laid his hands on this nun, and she fell down. And he prayed for this big fellow who fell right on top of her and rolled off of her. So he was working on that end of the line. I went down to this end of the line. There was a lady there. She said, I've got you know, this terrible, terrible headache. And I said, all right. So I laid hands on her and said, all right, in the name of Jesus, you'll be healed of this. And, I, and it wasn't there. Nothing was there. Nobody was home from my side. So I remember this story I told you. So I said, all right, I'm going to go down the line, pray for some other people. I'll be right back. I want you to just mention Jesus. Just say Jesus. I don't mean form a bunch of pictures and try to do all that stuff. Just speak the name Jesus. I'll be back in a minute. So she said, Jesus, Jesus. You, know, you could tell her it was pain at Jesus. And I said, just don't quit. Don't give up. And I went down the line, prayed for some people. And every now and then I looked back down there at her. So I got down here, the last person. And as I started back down there, she was going, Jesus, Jesus, smiling. And I said, how are we doing? She said, I'm healed. I'm healed. Jesus. So it works. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. It's a good place to go. It's something to be acquainted with. It's a wonderful power to be equipped with. But it all comes in whether or not you're willing to trust that name for your own life. Because you can't be an imposter. You can't read about what somebody else did and then think it'll work for you. We know men tried that in the Bible. But when you love it, you live it, you're trusting God yourself. The name has meaning for you. Then you can release that name. You can tell somebody else. God will honor that. Whatever you bind on earth shall. You speak the word and God watches over the word. He'll perform it. You're an ambassador. You're a vessel of his word. You carry it out to people. You speak the word. Speak the word only. Finally, you turn to Isaiah 26 and verse 3. We're just about done. Isaiah 26 and verse 3. Peace. Peace, safety, stability, nobody desolate, experiencing mercy and goodness, all because you trust God. How wonderful it is. All the benefits of trust. Boy, goodness, mercy, not desolate, stable, safe, now peaceful. Isaiah 26, 3. Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace. The Hebrew says, peace, peace. Emphatic. Peace, peace. Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. If you've been keen listening tonight, you pick up on some things about trust. One of them here is the mind which can go in a lot of different directions. The devil is the object of his work in you is your mind. God also appeals to your mind. He hides his word in your heart. It's a spirit that gives understanding of that word to your mind, which is being renewed. This is the way it works, a cleansing here. And when your mind, when you begin to determine as an act of your will to heed what God has said and you trust in it, even though the world's falling apart out there and arrows are flying every which direction, as the 91st Psalm says, he said, he will keep you in peace, peace. Wonderful peace. Remember the song? Peace, peace. Wonderful peace coming down from the Father above. Watch over my spirit forever, I pray. Fathomless billows of love. Peace. Being able to face adversity and not be concerned of it. Hearing about the swine flu, not being moved by it. Not even a, that much. I have no interest in it. He bore my disease and carried my pains. And what God laid on Jesus, the devil has no right to put on me. I've been delivered. If you believe that and you're trusting in that and you're counting on that, and you're living like that's true and not something else you need, he brings you peace, not afraid. You see, the world of trust, the encouragement of Christian people to trust the Lord, total trust, it's part of the message of total faith because total faith is total trust. And the benefits are overwhelming. We just mentioned a few of them tonight. Their Bible's full of other things. I had to select these.
but all these things that God says that if you're willing to trust me and eliminate all these other things that the world counts on and just let me, he said, I will, I will, I will. And in closing, the 91st Psalm, the 91st Psalm, he said in verse 2, let's see if our Bible say the same thing. He said, I will say of the Lord, he, God, he, is my refuge and my fortress. He is my God in whom I will trust. Surely. These are benefits. We didn't even use this one tonight. Surely. This is what he will do because you trust him. But look at verse 4. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. Those again, those are figures of speech to show relationship and what comes out of relationship. It brings into your life what God has to bring. It brings deliverance, redemption, and peace and joy and faith. All the things that are needed right now, tonight as I speak, the Father gives. He's looking for the heart that is open to him so that he can come in, commune with you and sup with you, Stands at the door and knocks. He comes in, begins to reveal himself or disclose himself. Didn't he say that he would do that too in John 14? He that hath my word to keep it is, he it is that loveth me, and he that loves me shall be loved in my Father, and we will come and manifest ourselves to him. What do you think you get out of all of that? Do you dread getting up tomorrow walking with God? Well, there's something that God does. Peace is kind of like love. It's hard to explain the fullness and the depth of it. It's just a lack of mental agitation, a lack of mental irritability. That yapping mouth gives way to peacefulness and quietness. That criticism and backbiting and opinionated ideas about this politician or that guy and this, it all gives way to something we call peace. Again, in closing, in Colossians 3, Paul wrote that we should let the Word of God dwell richly in our hearts. And he goes on in Colossians 3 and verse 15 and 16, and he said, And let the peace of God rule. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. I don't know, that's another sermon, but let me just, one sentence. What do you mean, let the peace of God rule in your heart? Are you at peace with this? Are you at peace with this decision you're about to make? Are you at peace with slapping him in the face? Are you at peace with stealing? Are you at peace with lying? Are you at peace with distortion or deception? If you're working for an employer, are you at peace with trying to cut your hours or get by with as little as you can and not working for your employer as you would if Jesus was your employer? Are you at peace with that? Are you at peace with neglecting your responsibilities as a man, as a woman, as a husband, as a father, as a student, as a child? We've all got them. Are you at peace with the way you live? You say, no, well then peace is not ruling your life. You're not at peace because you're violating all the things he says. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Is that what it says? Let the word of God dwell in you meagerly. No, come on. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. And what will happen? In the next verse, the peace of God will rule, won't it? Wouldn't it be nice to know that you don't have to be guilty about what you're doing? How you're living well, if you got a brother here taken in a fault and you go to him and they say you know I have watched I've come to you personally I want to gain you because you're living wrong you're talking wrong you're living wrong I saw something you did the other day and it bothered me because we're in the same church and we're brothers or sisters and I'm here to tell you that you're wrong I only do it because I love you could you have peace about doing that would that be a peaceful thing for you to do? Could it issue peace in the person you're talking to? 
If it corrects them, it would. Amen. God is good. So, remember this tonight when you go home. God has called us to peace. But peace travels down the highway of trust. And trust is a key that unlocks the door to so much of what God is willing to give you. And trust is a choice. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, your word is very pure. Your word is very good. Teach us how to love it, how to walk in it because we want to. Teach us how to seek you daily. Your disciples once asked Jesus, they said, teach us how to pray. Lord, teach us not only how to pray, but teach us how to live this life so that our testimony before others can be there's a man, there's a woman, there's a young man, a young woman, there's a boy, there's a girl that knows Jesus. And may they be always ready out there to ask us a reason of the hope that is within us. May our light shine that way, and may our favor be the favor that you give us to live this life. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.